I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Previously on Outside In. Did, did you watch your mom get arrested? Yes, I did. I held her purse. The gathering at Standing Rock caught the world's attention. Those became like national conversations rather than just indigenous conversations. And the attention of the fossil fuel industry. These are the same forces that called us, we American Indians, religiously driven indigenous jihadists. In the years since, a wave of legislation has swept across the country. I don't think they did damage to property, but obviously they're... I'm pretty sure they did a whole lot of damage to property in North Dakota. Criminalizing acts of protest, especially near pipelines. There is no state that forgot to make it illegal to destroy people's property. So the legislation is really just upping the ante on peaceful protest activity. That is the main thing they're trying to restrict. On a Saturday afternoon in early December, Naomi Dix arrived at the Sunrise Theater for rehearsal. Sound check, lighting cues, making sure that we were putting on, you know, a perfect production for this community because they had never seen a show like a drag show like this before. This show was in a rural part of North Carolina, in a town called Southern Pines. Naomi is a drag artist. Naomi Dix is actually her drag name. And she's not used to a lot of pushback when it comes to her performances. 
it wasn't until recently, maybe I would even say like towards the end of 2021, that there started to be a lot of, a lot more apprehension in not wanting drag shows in general to exist. As soon as they hung up the posters, they started getting calls to shut it down. Hate of the anti-drag, homophobic variety. It was led in part by Emily Grace Rainey. She's a former military officer. She was actually investigated by the Army for her involvement in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And this was just a couple weeks after the mass shooting at a queer nightclub in Colorado Springs. And so, yeah, I, I started to get a little bit concerned, but my feelings on whether the show should go on or not never changed. Like, I knew <laughs> that I was going to do the show, no matter what. It was a sold-out show. Before the curtain, Naomi went outside to address the crowd. She estimates there were around 40 people gathered to oppose the event, but over 200 there to support it. And I want you to yell at the top of your lungs, I love you. The show started about 20 minutes late. Um, but listen, we're drag queens. No drag show ever starts on time. So we knew that was going to happen. I had finished introducing the third act, went behind stage, and my assistant and my security guard said to me, I know that the lights were supposed to go out according to the cue list, but I think that the electricity actually went out. And I said, oh, really? <laughs> The theater was completely dark. Naomi's assistant steps outside and then comes back and says, Yeah, it looks like the electricity is out down the street as well. Then her security guard says, I am looking on my phone right now, and I think it's not only the street, but I think it actually might be the whole county. Naomi went back out on stage and told the audience to stay calm to take out their cell phones and put on the flashlight. And then she led the audience in an impromptu sing-along of Halo. I mean, this was all going on while we're in the back of the theater going, what has happened? What, what's going on here? Lauren Mathers was standing in the back of the theater watching all of this. Lauren was one of the event's main organizers. And the relief and joy she'd felt seeing a sold-out theater was rapidly giving way to concern. Here are all these queer people and drag artists and allies, all gathered together in one place, and the power was out. We made the decision that we needed to stop the show and get people out of the theater safely, because we had no idea. And that moment, what was going on? You know, we didn't know, I did not know until I got home that the power station had been shot up. This was not an ordinary power outage. Two electrical substations that served power to Southern Pines, to most of the county, had been deliberately attacked. We don't yet know who did it, or if the drag show was the target. After the power outage, Emily Grace Rainey, the former officer and insurrectionist who tried to have the show shut down, she did post a cryptic message on Facebook saying she knew why the power outage happened. When questioned by police, she told them, it was God who was responsible. Here's what we do know. In response to the protests at Standing Rock, legislators have crafted bills that critics say are designed to chill protest. 
This in the name of protecting critical infrastructure, especially pipelines. But meanwhile, critical infrastructure is actually under threat. In Moore County, about 45,000 customers were without power for days. Schools and businesses had to close. It was the largest attack on the grid in U.S. history. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. And you're listening to the second of two episodes on the changing landscape of environmental protest in the United States and what we mean when we talk about terrorism. Today, we're looking at attacks on the electrical grid. Only, these have nothing to do with environmental activists. What we are seeing in the white power movement is this very worrying rhetoric really focusing on destroying infrastructure. And we'll be heading to Atlanta, Georgia, to the front lines of a movement where the stakes for protest in the United States are escalating to a whole new level. Organizers are scared. Neighbors are terrified. I'm scared. Producer Justine Paradise takes it from here. Before Moore County, the biggest physical attack on the U.S. electrical grid was about a decade ago in California, Silicon Valley. John Wellinghoff remembers it well. I was in my office, I believe it was on a Friday morning. I got a call from the CEO of Pacific Gas and Electric, Tony Early. It was 2013. At the time, John was the chair of FERC. That's the federal agency in charge of, among other things, making sure the grid is reliable and secure. He called me and indicated to me that there had been an attack on one of his substations and that it had been a very um, substantial attack. So John flew to California to walk the grounds with a member of his staff and a couple former special forces officers. Because electricity infrastructure can also be a military target. These were people whose job it had been to attack portions of the grid overseas or to train others to do so. At this substation in California, the attackers had damaged the transformers. These transformers are huge boxes that contain cores of copper metal inside. And then hanging off these transformers are what are called cooling fins. Someone had shot up the cooling system around the transformers. They also got into a communications vault just next to the substation. The vault was about 12 feet deep. It's one of these where you have to open up a manhole sewer cover-like thing. And they got down in the vault, cut off all of the, the fiber cable. And we believe they did that to cut the communications from the substation. This 2013 attack in California didn't cause a grid shutdown. That substation had 21 transformers, and they'd only knocked out 17. But still, it was a wake-up call. If the attackers had shut down the substation entirely, worst-case scenario, John told me, they could have knocked out power to a lot of Silicon Valley. So Facebook, Twitter, plus tens of thousands of people. We went back inside the trailer, and I asked my two Special Forces guys, who do you think did this? And they said, well... 
This looks like to us what we would call a targeting package. It was extremely detailed. They knew exactly what their objective was. They knew exactly what they wanted to do. And then they gave that plan to individuals who were highly trained to execute the plan and they executed it. After that 2013 attack in California, regulators at FERC did put new security standards in place, requiring companies like PG&E to review the security at their substations and come up with a plan. But that framework didn't require companies to protect every substation. And in North Carolina, when attackers hit the Moore County transformers, they succeeded. Looking at pictures of the damage, John thinks the attackers targeted the cooling fins by shooting through the fence just like they had 10 years earlier in California. It was, again, using rifle fire to disable transformers. Uh, so it seems to be somewhat of a, of a mimic to the San Jose attack. The other thing these two attacks have in common is we don't know who did it. Nobody knows. Uh, I, I think it was ultimately an act of terrorism uh, and one of the most significant acts of terrorism uh, against uh, the electric grid in the United States. There's a lot we still don't know about what happened in Silicon Valley and Moore County. The latter is still under investigation by multiple agencies, including the FBI. But one thing we do know is these attacks are far from the only ones. In June 2022, someone shot up a substation in rural Washington and took out power for over 7,000 people. Reporters have since identified a string of 15 other physical attacks to the Pacific Northwest grid. And other planned attacks in Idaho and Baltimore were foiled before they could take place. In short, this is a thing. It's so, I mean, with some of these cases, it's so hard to tell. But, I mean, the truth of the matter is that there has been this pretty big uptick in human-caused interruptions. That's Hannah Gaze. She's a senior research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center. In 2022, there were 160 human-caused interruptions. So that includes physical attacks, but as well as vandalism, cybersecurity threats, things like that. Whereas in 2018, there were only 51. So that's a 277% increase or thereabouts. We do know who's behind some of these other attacks. Neo-Nazis the white power movement, the people Hannah studies for a living. What we are seeing in the white power movement is this very distressing and worrying rhetoric really focusing on destroying infrastructure. White supremacists are, of course, also often behind horrible acts of violence like mass shootings. But they're also targeting things like cell towers, railroads, and the grid. This is a tactic of an extreme far-right ideology called accelerationism, summarized here by Alex Amend, another researcher of far-right hate groups. Accelerationism, white power accelerationism, is the idea that you basically need to take action to speed the collapse of current society. The, the enemy, the, the society of, you know, racial and gender equality and democracy. Accelerationism is not a new idea. 
There's this one text written in the 1970s. It's a white terror novel depicting a civil war and the victorious white race. It's kind of a foundational text, one that inspired, for instance, Timothy McVeigh, the guy responsible for the Oklahoma City bombings. So how do you do that? Um, You sow chaos and you murder people and you attack infrastructure and you seek to just create terror. So this new generation of white power, they're basically just recycling these old gross ideas, but now on online forums. One of them is a neo-Nazi named Brandon Russell. Brandon Russell is the co-founder of a group called Adam Hoffman Division. I think they really represent some of the worst parts of the movement in many ways. In 2022, after getting released from prison where he'd been serving a different sentence, he and a co-conspirator, Sarah Beth Daniel, allegedly planned to attack a series of electrical substations around Baltimore. And, you know, Baltimore, of course, looms large in the white supremacist movement as like an example of a city run by um, the enemy where, you know, black people live and black people have political control. Um, And so it's a target. Their plan was to time the attack to cause, quote, cascading failure costing billions of dollars. Before they could carry this out, the FBI arrested them. They haven't been sentenced yet, but they're being charged with, quote, conspiracy to destroy an energy facility. And they're being prosecuted by the National Security Division's counterterrorism section. Terrorism. I think it's about time we try to understand what that word means. In my research, that was by far the most difficult piece of of scholarship was trying to construct a definition of terrorism because there is not one agreed upon definition by local, state, federal, or international uh, law enforcement and government agencies. This is investigative journalist Will Potter. Smart career has really been spent focusing on attempts to label protest and charge protesters as terrorists. And that's happened in a lot of different ways, starting in, you know, the early 1980s through the present day. The FBI defines terrorism as, quote, the unlawful use of force or violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government or civilian population in furtherance of political or social objectives. That's close, but slightly different from how Will summed it up. Most people associate it, and it should be associated with reckless and indiscriminate violence against civilians in the name of influencing government conduct. But there's another element, and it's inside the word itself. Terror. Fear is central to it. It's not just the violence that's the point. It's instilling fear in the wider population paying attention that they might be targeted. And... That's how, it, that's how terrorism operates as a tactic. And what's happened starting before September 11th and into the present day is that term terrorism has been stretched, manipulated, bended. I've seen the term used against everything from protests, leafleting, tree sits, food not bombs, a group that hands out free food to homeless people, has been routinely targeted as and labeled as domestic terrorists. The kind of gloves have come off and the the parameters have come off of the term um, that is being used so indiscriminately now. The 
question of what is terrorism, or at least what is violence, that's something we talked about a lot in our last episode, specifically in the case of the Dakota Access Pipeline protests and climate activists Ruby Montoya and Jessica Reznicek. We never at all threatened human life. And actually, we were, we, uh, we're acting in an effort to save human life. Who set heavy equipment on fire and burned through exposed pipeline valves with a blowtorch. The oil being taken out of the ground and the machinery that, that does it and the infrastructure which supports it, that, this is violent. They also very publicly took responsibility for those actions, explaining that their motivation was the climate crisis. To, quote, dismantle the infrastructure that deny us our rights to water, land, and liberty. Ruby Montoya and Jessica Reznicek were each charged with essentially the same crime as the neo-Nazi leader of Adam Waffen, Brandon Russell, and his co-conspirator, Sarah Beth Daniel. Both groups are or were treated as domestic terrorists by the criminal justice system. It's such a weird exercise to place climate activists who sabotaged an oil pipeline side-by-side with neo-Nazis attacking the electrical grid to accelerate the collapse of society with the eventual aim of murdering entire groups of people. But here we are. Yeah, uh, it's something that's kind of haunted me for a long time, thinking about these tactics. When you talk about the actions people take, I don't think we can ever be intellectually honest while at the same time trying to separate that from the beliefs that motivate those actions. And so when I think about something like the energy infrastructure bills or attacks on infrastructure, you know, I, I don't really see a problem with drawing a line between, you know, if you do that in the name of white nationalism, you know, I have a problem with that. If you're indigenous people who are disrupting energy infrastructure in order to protect sovereignty of your land and ultimately to protect life, I just can't even view it in the same conversation, really. Um, I think we have to really firmly keep those tactics tied to the motivations of people doing it. Right. So we don't need to jump through hoops, you're saying, to be completely ideologically consistent when that's not really what this is about. I, I just think we should keep a perspective of um, what's at stake. One side is wants to exterminate groups of people based on their race and identity, and the other side doesn't. Some of the groups sounding the alarm about the threat to vulnerable communities from far-right extremists are also very skeptical of laws that would make it easier to prosecute them as terrorists. Laws like the Patriot Act, passed after 9-11, dramatically expanding powers of surveillance over U.S. citizens to deal with threats of foreign terrorism. After the insurrection on January 6th, the chair of the House Homeland Security Committee joined calls for more tools to deal with domestic terrorism as well, specifically a new federal domestic terrorism statute. I mean, that's... It's really tricky. Hannah Gaze again. I mean, the position of the SPLC has been basically that Congress should reject efforts to create a new criminal domestic terrorism statute. And that's basically because the infrastructure to prosecute these guys is already there, similarly with monitoring them. And 
The biggest concern, I think particularly in my view, say after January 6th, uh, was this kind of rhetoric around bringing the tools of the war on terror into fighting domestic extremism. Again, because the criminal code already deals with terrorism, Hannah says, a new domestic terrorism statute is not only unnecessary, but some administrations could pivot and use it very differently than intended. And not against far-right extremists, but against movements on the left and people of color instead. In North Carolina earlier this year, after the biggest ever attack on the electrical grid in the U.S., the senator from Moore County sponsored a bill. It was called Protect Critical Infrastructure. This bill is in direct response to the some 40,000-plus residential and business customers that were left without electricity in Moore County when someone undertook a, an intentional, willful militia. That's North Carolina State Senator Paul Newton presenting the bill at a committee hearing in March 2023. So for several days, businesses were, were without power. Uh, hospital, the hospital was on backup power, and uh, people could have died. There's no doubt about it. This bill is not an example of the model legislation we talked about in the last episode. There's a lot of overlap, though. Stricter criminal penalties, reclassifying misdemeanors to felonies, and more. Nothing to actually improve security at substations, though. Just plain old punishment as deterrence. It's uh, incumbent on us as a legislature to ensure the penalties are adequately stiff to deter the kind of behavior that we saw in Moore County. Uh, you know, when you think about but the, towards the end of his statement, the senator takes a left turn and brings up something that's happening not in North Carolina, but 350 miles and two states away. One of the beauties of this bill is the joint and several liability that's associated with it. If you think about what happened in Atlanta with the attack on Cop City. The protests against Cop City. I mean, you had a lawyer with the Southern Poverty Law Center. These are not penniless, uh, often penniless people that have maybe conspired to do this. You had people from all over the nation uh, perpetrating that crime in, in uh, Georgia. Uh, who's to say that won't happen here or didn't already happen here? We just haven't caught the perpetrators. That's after the break. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. 
wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Atlanta, Georgia has a nickname, City in a Forest. By some accounts, it has the most tree cover of any major city in the United States, almost 50%. You know, it's so funny. Um, it, was just a, it was just a gorgeous day. On a Sunday evening in March, in one of these forests, Arielle Marie stepped foot into a field for an outdoor concert and festival. It was around 5 p.m. The sun was starting to set, and you could kind of hear the music kind of wafting back through the trees. It just felt really good. I remember thinking like, oh, it's like our own little like politically aligned Woodstock, <laughs> minus, <laughs> minus all the hallucinogenics, plus kids. This particular forest in question goes by many names. The South River Forest, for one, or the Wilani Forest, which is the Muscogee Creek name for it. Just a few years ago, this forest was included in a plan for a connected conservation corridor in the city. But in 2021, the Atlanta City Council approved the lease of a huge part of this forest, almost 400 acres, to the Atlanta Police Foundation, a nonprofit which supports and funds the police. The Atlanta Police Foundation is planning a public safety training facility on at least 85 acres of this forest in southeast Atlanta. Their plan includes a mock city for training police in essentially urban warfare, complete with a mock convenience store, a nightclub, a motel and apartment building, a gas station. Activists call it Cop City. There are a lot of reasons people are opposed to Cop City. Because of the environment, for one. Trees are good for air and water and cooling things down, which is especially important in a hotter climate. And then there's the fact that this project would be an expansion and investment in the police. The Wilani Forest is in a majority Black neighborhood, and this is only about a year after people were marching in the streets calling for a defunding of the police. We don't want Cop City. I live in East Atlanta. I don't want Cop City. I got five Black children. I don't want Cop City. I like breathing clean air. I don't want Cop City. I don't want Black Hawk helicopters landing around the corner from my house. I don't want Cop City. In the decisive meeting to approve the project, 70% of comments were opposed, but the Atlanta City Council approved it anyway. That was in September 2021. After that, a group of activists moved into the forest to try to prevent this project from happening. They called themselves Forest Defenders. They'd been living there for over a year, in tents and tree platforms, when police raided the camp. During one of those raids, law enforcement killed a forest defender a Venezuelan indigenous person who went by the name Tortuguita. They shot them at least 57 times. 
This was the first police killing of an environmental protester in the United States. A couple months later, people organized what they called a week of action, a week in early March of events and protests to defend the Atlanta forest. The concert was one of them. What the event had been kind of broadcasted as was a peaceful and low stakes manner of supporting the week of action. In other words, this wasn't supposed to be dangerous. So when Ariel gets there, they're seeing families, there's a bouncy house where kids are playing, people are grilling out. And of course there's a stage, a lineup of bands set to play. Ariel grew up in Atlanta. They're an author, poet, and community organizer. They'd come to the festival to interview people for a documentary they're making about activism. As we're recording these interviews, we had to stop a couple of times because we noticed that a helicopter um, a blacked-out helicopter was kind of circling lower and lower. And the organizer in me is like, oh, something's up. Something's up. Um, because it wasn't a news chopper, it was a, a police helicopter. Ariel's getting a bad feeling. And even though they're not there as an organizer, they had experience with the police. They'd been involved with the Black Lives Matter movement since they were a teenager. So watching this helicopter, something doesn't feel right. The second, the second the sun went down, the second it went from dusk to like nighttime, we began to hear police sirens. Like, I was like, that has to be like 30, 30 cars. Police were coming through the trees with their guns drawn. There was SWAT there all of a sudden. But at this point, the music's still pumping. Kids are still bouncing in the bounce house. It's loud. So I went into organizing mode, even though it wasn't my event. I didn't know anybody there. And I just started grabbing people and I was like, hey, if you are not willing to take a rest, you know, because you're in this park, it's time to go now. If you can get to your car, go now. Then people do begin to realize what's happening. And it's chaos. Parents are trying to find their kids. People are running. Ariel's seeing people have panic attacks. There's like these blacked out officers coming from the woods, you know, with a rifle in your face. And you're just, there's no, there's no training for that. It's, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. I remember watching, I believe, a state trooper with an automatic weapon, with it drawn. And he was walking slowly toward the bounce house. Do you feel this person's pointing their gun inside a bouncy house right now? That state trooper just pointed a rifle inside a bouncy house. This is a public park. So again, here in I make it back to my car, um, and then they're not letting cars leave. And I, you know, they're going car to car, and they're they're just saying, "Check for mud, check for mud on their if they've got mud, pull them." Check for mud. This is important for reasons I'll explain in a minute. And I had mud all over. I had mud all over my shoes. I had mud all over my, I mean, it's all over my car. It's, I mean, it's Georgia. There's red clay everywhere. I was confused. I was like, there's mud everywhere. And I, and I just thought it was a mass arrest for everyone at the park. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, smells, feels like uh, tear gas or pepper spray was deployed. <coughs> <coughs> So here's what happened. While the concert was taking place, 
a group of activists marched to the Cop City construction site. It was about a mile away, just a big empty area with some bulldozers and construction trailers cordoned off with a chain-link fence covered in fabric. In videos taken from a police helicopter, you can see infrared images of dozens, maybe hundreds of people, some wearing dark clothes, hats, and face coverings, others carrying shields, making their way up the power line. When the police saw the crowd coming, they hesitated and then ran. In the video, you can see them duck as fireworks go off just a few feet away. At the site, activists overturned porta potties and set a bulldozer on fire, which can be seen engulfed in huge, deep orange flames. The protesters call these events distinct, the festival and the march. But later, the police will lump them all together. This was a very violent attack that occurred this evening. Very violent attack. This wasn't about a public safety training center. This was about anarchy, and this was about the attempt to destabilize. That's Darren Sherbon, chief of police for the Atlanta Police Department. No officers were injured that night. But to Chief Sherbaum, this wasn't a protest. He later said this group was using the peaceful protest as a cover for this action. This is not a protest. I think at that last press conference, I made a clear distinction what a protest looks like. Uh, when it's a legitimate protest, you have the full protection of the Atlanta Police Department. This is not a protest. This is criminal activity. And the charges uh, that will be brought forth will show that. When you throw fi- uh, commercial-grade fireworks, when you throw Molotov cocktails, large rocks, a number of items at officers, your only intent is to harm. And the charges are going to show that tonight when we make the appropriate charges. The Wilani Forest is big, dense and tangled in parts, in others kind of marshy. Police say that that group that marched to the construction site, that they passed through a muddy part of the forest. And that's ostensibly why police were checking for mud at the concert. But while Ariel was sitting in her car, wondering if they'd get arrested, they didn't know any of this. That part of the forest and where we were, were almost exactly a mile away. I'm not really clear on how arrests being made at that protest and arrests at the field became sort of like this one homogenous event, except that I know that the police escalate for the purpose of a larger argument. And in this case, the larger argument was that everyone there was in the forest for the purpose of enacting domestic terrorism. Eventually, the police let Ariel go home. But at least 35 people were detained that night. In the end, 23 would be arrested, including a legal observer, and charged with domestic terrorism. A few years ago, those charges would not have been possible in the state of Georgia. That's because the state used to define terrorism as crimes intended or reasonably likely to kill or injure not less than 10 individuals. But then, Dylan Roof walked into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and started shooting. He killed nine churchgoers. And so previously in Georgia, if you killed fewer than 10 people, you could not be charged with domestic terrorism. Madeline Thigpen is a reporter for Capital B Atlanta. So that's one thing that this bill changed, but it also gives the state attorney general more power to prosecute 
terrorists. Now the threshold for terrorism is much, much lower in Georgia. It can include attempted felonies that, and this should sound familiar, intend to disable or destroy critical infrastructure, intimidate civilians, or change government policy through intimidation. The possible penalty in the case of damage to critical infrastructure is five to 35 years in prison. And I will say, like, at the time the bill was passed, it did have support from a lot of Democrats, but there also were a number of Democrats who spoke up and said, you know, this very well could be used against, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters, other kinds of uh, protest movements. Another thing to note here, the people I talk to who study the white power movement say that violent white supremacists don't necessarily appear to be deterred by harsher punishments. In fact, prison can further radicalize people. Case in point, Brandon Russell, leader of Adam Waffen, he met his co-conspirator in planning the Baltimore attack while incarcerated. Will Potter again. In my research, I found that both state and federal law enforcement have repeatedly repeatedly for decades refused to shift their focus from environmentalists to the rise of the far right, even as people like Dylan Roof are murdering people and shooting up nightclubs and killing trans people and gay people and burning black churches. I watched the bond hearing on March 7th for the 23 people detained on domestic terrorism charges after that concert. It was over Zoom, and they didn't allow recording. In one camera window, all the defendants were sitting in a room in orange jumpsuits. In another, the judge. And then little squares for the lawyers, the defense attorneys, and the state prosecutor. It was bleak. All 23 defendants are being treated as the same case. Most of the 23 arrest warrants look copy-pasted, almost word for word. I watched at my desk in a quiet house in the snowy Vermont mountains, a thousand miles away, as person after person stood up at the podium. And their lawyers argued for them. Maybe they brought in a character witness, a friend, their mom, to say, this person is not a terrorist. They're a law student. This is a person who organizes community dinners in their neighborhood. They were only in Atlanta to see a friend. If they don't get bond, they'll lose their job. They have a daughter. They won't be able to get their electrician license that Monday. One person said, when they heard their friend had been arrested, it felt like the sky was falling. As each defendant came up, the state prosecutor would say, the state requests that the court deny bond. At one point, he said, quote, I think that what gets lost on people is... There's protest, and there's criminal acts. And the reason we're here today is because of people committing criminal acts, not protesting. And one after another, after another, after another, the judge said almost exactly the same thing. At this time, based on the charges before me, this person's ties to other states, and the totality of the circumstances surrounding this arrest, they are a flight risk and a threat to the community. For every person except one, the legal observer. Bond denied. Since that hearing, all 23 defendants have been granted bond. The most waited weeks, and two were granted bond as recently as last Friday. And law enforcement's crackdown on this movement has been intense and widespread. 
the total number of people charged with domestic terrorism in connection with protests against Cop City is 42. People have also been threatened with arrest for blocking a sidewalk, actually arrested on felony charges for distributing leaflets, or in the case of Tortuguita, killed. Well, this is uh, what I'm wondering is, um, you know, what's the conversation like now, both with yourself and with other people? Does it give you pause? Are people, are you scared? Like, what's the conversation now? Oh, don't make me cry. (laughs) That's Ariel Maria again, the community organizer and poet who attended the concert in the Wilani Forest on March 5th. Remember the idea of the chilling effect on protest? They feel it. Organizers are scared. Um, Neighbors who, who were not even involved, but just against Cop City being built, are terrified to get involved. Um, I'm scared. I, um, I've, I've got the, the shoes that I was wearing that Sunday sitting in my closet, um, cause I just can't, I'm trying to like put together in my mind that like the difference between me sitting here and talking with you and sitting in a jail cell was the mud on those shoes. I don't even know if that makes sense. I just I just can't wrap my brain around the 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 enormity of this this escalation. But the chilling effect isn't the whole picture. The dynamics between movements and policing are more complicated than that. I think organizers are terrified and that much more um sure that This work is critical. When repression ramps up, people stop protesting. But past a certain point, if oppression gets too intense, people sometimes just say, screw it. The circumstances have have been untenable and are now even more so. I'm very invested in that expansion stopping here and stopping now. This moment goes beyond Cop City, beyond Standing Rock. It's beyond forests and pipelines. If you are involved in any kind of movement or struggle for justice anywhere, the context has shifted. The rules are changing, and the space for protest, for dissent, for existing in different bodies and forms in this world, it's under threat. But, Dozens of human rights and environmental organizations have condemned the domestic terrorism charges in Atlanta and the tactics the state is using against the movement to stop Cop City. Those organizations include the Center for Biological Diversity, the National Lawyers Guild, and Amnesty International. And this spring, a team appointed by the UN's Human Rights Council toured the U.S. with a focus on racial justice and policing. And one of their stops was Atlanta. So people are watching. And for Ariel, it's not just about being against Cop City. It's also about being for something. About hope for the future. If I could be 
so brave as to be optimistic. It's this beautiful possibility making um, uh, opportunity. This is an issue that brings all of our front lines into one single line. And it's terrifying because all of us have a lot to lose. Um, But it's also beautiful because this is potentially a win that we can all share. And, And I'm trying to stay present with that fact, even with the mud on the bottom of my shoes. If you want to learn more about the movement to stop Cop City, check out writer Micah Herskin's explainer in Scalawag magazine. There's so much in there that we didn't get into, like the history of the forest and the economic and political forces at play in Atlanta and beyond. We also recommend The Forest for the Trees in The Bitter Southerner. We'll link to both of those in the show notes along with more reading for the series. And a couple of updates. After the Moore County attack, when power was knocked out at that drag show and to 40,000 other people, FERC asked for a new study from another grid oversight group. That study assessed the physical security standards for the grid, and it found that more guardrails are needed in terms of how grid vulnerability is assessed. They're planning a technical conference together to gather more data. In Atlanta, Georgia, last week, leaders of a local bail fund were arrested on charity fraud and money laundering because they bailed out the people charged with domestic terrorism. Two days before we released this episode, the Atlanta City Council voted to approve $31 million of public funding to build the so-called Cop City. Special thanks to Micah Herskin, Mike German, Yesenia Funes, and Clark White. This episode was reported and produced by Justine Paradise. It was edited by Taylor Quimby with help from Jack Rodolico, Rebecca Lavoy, Jungyun Han, Felix Poon, Jessica Hunt, and me, Nate Hedgie. Music came from the Blue Dot Sessions, Auto Hacker, Black Sona, The Big Letdown, and Hadamit Tsunami. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. room is where you make life's most beautiful memories but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them the new life resistant high performance furniture collection from ashley is designed to withstand all the spills slip-ups and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life ashley high performance sofas and recliners are soft on trend and easy to clean shop the high performance furniture in store or online at ashley.com 
Ashley for the love of home.